23 years. Um, and they were in Central and South America. And uh, actually, the last part was a similar duty. We had some missionaries. In fact, the pastor gave last year's Bible conference. Uh, they're doing a similar thing where they're in more of a support role with other missionaries. And, and, uh, and then they come to Enid. Um, they have three children live in Edmond. And uh, again, uh, Brenda's probably on her most dangerous assignment, teaching at Enid High and teaching Spanish there. And uh, Perry is now, uh, I, I saw your title, her manager of pastoral ministries. Yeah. I call him a chaplain. And, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I get to watch Perry work every day. And uh, Perry, you know, you can tell just exudes a love for the Lord and a love for people. And, uh, you know, you can see him going in and out of patients' rooms. But, uh, you know, one of the things that people don't think about is, you know, working in hospitals is kind of a stressful environment. And I know he ministers significantly to the staff in the hospital. I and mean, he's, he's talking with them and, and praying with them. And uh, anyway, we, we mean Jeff and I and other staff, greatly appreciate what Perry does at our hospital. And I'll be honest, I've been excited about hearing, hearing you speak uh, for a long time, so I'm Glad to get to do that. So, anyway, come on up. What a great afternoon. What a great way to spend a Saturday. I want you to know I'm, I'm thoroughly excited about being here this evening. I, uh, as Jeff and Brian said, you know, I get to watch these guys work every day, and I'm, I marvel at it. I just, you know. But uh, when they don't pull it off, then I come in and save the day <laughs> and get, get people ready for eternity. <laughs> so uh, and they don't quite get it worked out. I will look for Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's kind of how it works. What a joy. Well, we've had a great, great <laughs> afternoon, and uh, I'm going to do my best not to ruin that. You know, we, uh, Brian's come in and he's helped us kind of come in and see the church from a 10,000 feet view, just looking down through the book of Acts, what God has been about, what he's doing, his, his love and passion for the church. And I've been, Brendan and I have been missionaries. We were raised by missionaries. I have studied missions. I've studied evangelism. We've studied things all over the world. God is at work like you wouldn't believe in some amazing ways, both here in the United States and everywhere. It's interesting because if you were to ask me what is the most effective way to reach a lost world, it, what's the strategy? Is it media? Is it this? Is it campaigns? And you know what? We have researched it. We've put the numbers on it and consistently planting churches, putting a church inside of a community and letting the body of Christ touch lives on a daily basis will outperform any strategy, anything out there. And so consistently in missions over the last hundred years, our strategies have been to plant churches in every community every area around the world and give people access to the body of Christ because Christ ministers through the body. And so the church, being the church, going out of the church, planning the church, that's it. That is the best strategy for reaching a lost world. And so uh, they've given me the topic of how does the church reach a lost world in, in the 21st century. Uh, boy, that's easy, right? Yeah. And, uh, and, we've, and they've just done such a good job this evening. 10,000 kids view. Jeff came in and helped us see some of the challenges. Got a little bit lower. We're coming up. We see the runway. And uh, 
You know, we got our treasure up, seatbelt on, you know, turned off your laptops, here we are, we're about to land. Now we're going to hit the ground. And this is where I want you to just bring your focus down even a little bit farther, kind of fine-tune that, and we're going to address not everything, but one area in very particular, and that is how do we as a church share our faith? What does that look like? And I don't have any great insight for you. In fact, what I'm going to tell you is, is that it really, because the world is constantly changing, people are changing, we hit, we're aiming at a moving target, I will not be able to give you a strategy, a leverage, a tool that will just answer all your questions. In fact, it's just the opposite. We need to go back and get our Bibles out, and we need to go back to the foundations of what we really believe about all that. Because how, what we believe about that is really going to dictate what our strategies and our methodologies and our leverages are. So tonight, my part of this, we're just going to go back and we're going to get to some basics here. Now we've been reminded this evening already that we have some challenges out there. We have, a, we have folks that are growing up at a time where they are biblically illiterate. They have no idea of uh, really the fundamental things of Jesus Christ. They, 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 they know that the Gideon Bibles lay everywhere, but have never touched one, uh, you know. And, uh, and so we just have a challenge. You know, uh, Brent and I worked overseas for many years and in different cultures and, and different ways of seeing the world. And uh, what I could say is I never, we never felt a lack of respect. Even though we were different, I don't remember ever feeling a lack of respect from a, a, a people group or an area. But that's not true here. We live in a pluralistic society where therapeutically, we basically, everything goes, you can, everybody believes everything. The only thing you can't be is a Christian, actually. And so we actually live in a very hostile environment. And I would say more than what I did overseas. I was able to share and talk about Jesus about anywhere I wanted to do. That's not true here in the States. So, but I want to tell you that that's not all, I know that's discouraging. We've heard some things that are discouraging, but I am not discouraged. I have seen what persecution does to the church. I have seen what a challenge does to the church. We just get pure. We get, our fire refines us and our, our gospel gets clear. And our lives get pure, and we start living the Christian life, and, and all of a sudden, you know, we go from just fitting in with the world to being very different than the world. But you know, here's the truth. People are looking for real answers. They have tried postmodernism, they've tried all the other philosophy, and it's not working. They come to the end of the road... Now, think about that. Evolution and all that. I'm sitting in a, in a hospital room with somebody that doesn't believe there's a God. And so basically what this person believes is, is that through the process of evolution, he's the weakest link. He's dying because he is the weakest link. Now, you ask this person, is that very comforting to know that you're the weakest link out there? And you're dying and sick because evolution is just weeding you out and we're getting stronger and stronger? That's no comfort. That's why we as Christians have a wonderful message. We have a, a, we have a theology and we have a, 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 a belief system that actually works. And it addresses some of the key issues.
life. And people today are more hungry than ever. But the problem is, we've been giving a soft diet. We've been kind of scared of saying a few things. And we're only only defensive. Our churches have gotten bigger and taller. And we've turned our chairs to the inside. And we've prayed, Lord, just protect us. Put a hedge of protection around us. That is not the church in the New Testament. The church in the New Testament turns their chairs and they look out the windows. How can we address and touch a lost world with the love of Jesus Christ? Because it's the only hope they have. God loves us too much to leave us the way we are. He is on a mission to redeem us back into a restored relationship to spend an eternity with Him. And so He is not content with just saying, well, you did the best you could. He is he's passionate about reaching and touching each one of us with his love. And so that's what we're going to talk about today and this evening. And you know, as we think about the church and some of the challenges, the response of the church today, more than anything, more than any other time, we need to preach the word. We've got to go back and preach the word. Um, I remember a, a pastor at Hydro years ago went to a funeral one time. And, uh, and I remember the pastor actually quoted out of a Reader's Digest, burying this guy. Now, you know, that, that couldn't have been very comforting, you know? Uh, a Reader's Digest article, you know? But that's where it's, it's gotten to sometimes. We, gotta, we have lost the art of sharing a true gospel in this day, and people are lost. And we must hold fast to the teachings of Scripture and call people to repentance and to faith in Jesus Christ. If we're going to be effective. I think also we've got to contextualize the church. Listen, I love the church. I love everything about the church. But the goal is not just church. In fact, the church, the body of Christ, we come together, we strategize, we love, we support, we heal. So that we can go back out into a lost world. Church is not just about, can we fill these pews? Now listen, I'm excited. Anytime you can get this many people on a Saturday to come in and talk about these kind of topics, I'm excited. You are a good church. And at the same time, I see these pews here, and I I can just visualize people saying that. Because that's what God's word. The nature of this church is to grow. Grow in its knowledge of Christ. Grow in its passion for God. Grow numerically. And to touch a lost world. That is that's the nature of the church. And so we want to be about that. Contextualizing the church. I left 23 years ago when the church was arguing about should we have hymns or choruses. I came back 23 years later from the mission field after seeing lost people that people had, who had, did not know the name of Jesus. You can get on a plane right here, travel eight hours into the Amazon jungle, There are 40 different people groups who have never had access to the name of Jesus yet. And we're still arguing about, is it hymns or choruses? The Bible says we ought to use them all. In the the, the church in in Ecuador, we had to practice also because there's actually a scripture that says hymns and psalms and praise songs, choruses. And so we actually have songs out of the psalms. We sung the Psalms. Do y'all sing the Psalms? Oh, y'all must not be very biblical then. 
Hey, you gotta, it, 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 so the goal is not just, we have to contextualize the church. And I don't mean just give up things that are dear to us. At any given moment, there's multiple congregations in this church. This church building has been here a long time. But, but the people that founded this church, they're dead. Now, there's some of you in here that's almost that old, but not quite. <laughs> and what we have are the grandchildren. We went to the churches up here tonight of, of, the, of the book of Revelations. We don't have one of those churches here today. None of them exist. They all died. All we have are the people they reached, that they reached, that they reached. We have their great-great-grandchildren. Churches are constantly, congregations are constantly getting old and dying. But if this generation does not win the next generation, then we are back into a lost, lost world. The Bible was canonized in North Africa. And today, if I were to get you on a plane and take you to North Africa, it's one of the most lost places in the face of the earth. Why? How did that happen? Because one generation didn't reach the next generation with the love of Christ. That's all it takes. So we have to be about contextualizing the church so that we make it easier for lost people to find the love and the compassion and forgiveness of Christ. And it really doesn't make any difference. We've studied that for years. It doesn't matter if you sing hymns or choruses. What matters if you have a passion in your praise when you've come into the presence of an Almighty God? We study it all. So we've got to do that. We've got to make disciples. We've got to start living the Christian life and inviting new believers to walk with us on a daily basis through that. Discipleship is not taught. Discipleship is caught. We have to do life together if we're going to make disciples. We're always looking for the next great program, plan, book, but it isn't going to work. <coughs> Jesus taught us that from the very beginning. We have to walk with people and live life with them if we are going to reduce, reproduce discipleship. Because it's caught, it's not taught. And you know what? More than any generation that's ever been born, the folks today love that. They love someone who will walk with them through life. Don't even care what the ages are. They love that. They seek it out. That's why they're texting. That's why they're reaching out. They're looking for that. But they're not finding it. And so this is one of those places that the church can move in and we can do some amazing things. And we must walk in the power and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. I think if any other time, we just need to... Have faith and preach and teach with boldness and confidence and just throw our heads back and go like, like, like we're running the last hundred yards of a race. And let God just take control of that. I think if the church would do that, there is a monster, there is a giant in the church in the United States and it's asleep and doesn't even know it. And we need to just wake up and see what all is going around. Now, I gave, uh, I gave that a little card. This is an index card. The batteries will not run down on this. You can keep this. It'll work any time, day or night. And so, here's what I want you to do real quick. I want you to just number one through five down just any side of it. It doesn't matter. One through five. And then I want to just take a, just a moment and write down the names of five people. You may not even know their name. You might just say, 
This is the lady that checks me out at Walmart when I go to Walmart. Somebody you know. Somebody sold me milk today or brought my eggs by her, whatever it is. I want you to name five people. I want you to put five names down there of people. And you may not know for certain, but as far as you know, they are not followers of Jesus Christ. These are people that need to hear and know about the love of Christ. That may be you're here this evening and you don't have five names. And that's okay. You write one or two or whatever you have, but then I want you to start praying about that. And ask God to give you five names. Five people that you care enough about to write their names on a piece of paper that they need to hear about Jesus. So I'm going to give you just a minute to do that. Alright? And you just hang on to that. After you've written those names, uh, turn to your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 13. I'm going to keep going. We'll come back to the list, so you can keep working on that if you need to. In Luke chapter 13, we have an interesting passage. It's the first, first five verses of this chapter. Jesus has been out teaching, he's been healing, he's been with people. And then a group of people come up to Jesus and they said, Jesus, did you hear the news? Did you, did you watch TV last night? What happened? Did you see what, what, what the, the emperor did, what Pilate did? Pilate, while there were some Galileans worshipping and making sacrifice, Pilate went in and he killed every one of them. And he took their blood and he scattered it and mingled it with the blood of their sacrifice. It was terrible. Terrible news. And then Jesus responds. And Jesus says, what does he say there? He says, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will in likewise perish. What a, what a strange response to tragedy. In fact, Jesus goes on and he says, I guess you also heard about the tower that fell there in Jerusalem. The tower that fell and it killed 18 people. He said, I know what you're thinking. He said, you're thinking that these Galileans, they must have done something really, really bad if God let that kind of misery fall on them. And you're probably thinking, these guys, these 18 guys, were they any worse sinners than the rest of the people in Jerusalem that this tower fell on them? You know, he said, and Jesus responds again, he said, now listen guys, Unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. Maybe think about that for a minute. Amazing tragedy. It's awful what's happened. And Jesus is saying that people need to repent or they will perish. All of them, he says. How would you respond to that? How do you respond when bad things happen? What they were thinking in their mind was, wow, this is horrific tragedy. 
So there must be horrific guilt. They must have really did something bad, and that's why God let them be judged like that. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus comes back and he makes the point, and he's kind of making the point that this is not extraordinary, this is normal, he says. He, now, he's not arguing that these, these folks, their sin is worse than ours, and that's why they die. What Jesus is saying is, we're as bad of sinners as they are, and that we need to repent. Or we, in the likewise, will perish. It's an amazing point of view. Now, pain and suffering is one of those topics nowadays in this culture, in this world, that if we don't have an answer for that, we don't have an answer. People are looking, they're trying to resolve the issue of pain and suffering. They come into the emergency rooms, they come into our hospitals, they come into our churches, and they're trying to figure out why does bad things happen to good people. But what Jesus says is, there are no good people. We are all sinners, he says. All of us are sinners. All of us deserve death. We deserve judgment. We're just like them. It's not that they were worse. No. You're just like them. And in fact, if you don't hurry and repent, you and likewise will perish. It will catch you by surprise, he says. And he calls them to repentance. Jesus is teaching them that all of us are extremely sinful. And that we are so sinful that calamity and disaster should not shock us when it comes our way. In fact, he goes on and he's really teaching us that we are not innocent. That all of us are guilty. And we're guilty all the time. We are sinners. We sin consistently. And we sin today. And it should not surprise us when bad things happen. But what we should remember is we all are called to repent or likewise we'll do. So he's saying everybody, everybody here is a sinner. He says here in this passage, and likewise. Now Jesus is talking more than just about, well, everybody's going to die someday. You know, we say that, don't we? Everybody's going to die someday until Jesus comes, unless Jesus comes back. That's what we say. But that's not what he's teaching here. That's not what he's saying. Look at the passage. I think what he's saying here is it's something like this. You see, you see what horrible end these people came to? They didn't think it was going to happen to them. They weren't prepared for it. They, they, they thought they would die someday, but it, would, it wouldn't be like this. He said, you need, to, you need to pay attention because the same thing is going to happen to you, and you're going to be surprised, and you will not be ready, he says. Today, more than ever, people are living without thinking about the consequences of their actions. Have you ever got on those that get on YouTube and look at videos and things like that? Or, you, or watch TV at all? They have whole shows of people doing amazingly stupid things so that they can just be seen. Maybe I'll get so many hits or something. Well, they get hit. They fall and they break bones and jaws and they live the rest of their life with consequences of that one split second because they didn't really think about the consequences. There's people every day that drop out of school. They I'm not going to study. 
I, I'm gonna, I want the freedom of today. I, I don't want the, all that hassle today. And what happens to them? They go through life, they get out here in the middle of life, and they don't have any options. They just got to take whatever job comes their way. Because they, did, they, didn't, they didn't discipline themselves early so they pay later. They don't think about the consequences of behavior. Well, I'll just uh, have a wonderful marriage, I have wonderful children, and but you know what? I, my needs aren't being met, and we start rationalizing, and pretty soon we're all going to keep in without even a thought of consequences. The pastors every year live their life, are not accountable to anybody, they just kind of tell themselves, I'm above that, and, and pretty soon they're open and vulnerable. And every, my job as a, as a missionary was to go and be with missionaries who fell into failure. Now you think about that. Who told themselves, boy, that would never happen to me. And didn't think of the consequences of their behavior. What that would mean to their family, their church, their community. We live this day. Well, that's what Jesus is saying here. You and likewise, you're not thinking about your consequences of your actions. So he calls them to repentance. Just like these folks died, you're going to die. And we need to remember that and think about that when we're thinking about people around us. So likewise, he says, so today we need to remember that just like them, we too can perish. And that's the next word in this passage, perish. Jesus is implying something here. It's important to catch it. He says, likewise, if you don't repent, you will perish. So he's implying that if you do repent, you will not perish. That's huge. That's important. I don't want to perish. Do you want to perish? I don't want to perish. So what is Jesus talking about? He's not talking about that someday we're just going to die. This is something that happens after death. That's what he's talking about. And so he's talking about stuff like John 3.16. Listen to it from, these, from this perspective. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So perishing is the alternative to eternal life. It's something that happens after death. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Perishing is the opposite of being saved by the cross of Jesus. It's something that happens after death here. So how serious is sin? Well, Jesus is saying it's so serious that unless you repent and believe, you will perish. Your children will perish. Your spouse will perish. Your parents will perish. Your children, your neighbors, your colleagues will perish. If they do not repent and believe. That's pretty hard stuff. That's serious stuff. That actually answers everything we've talked about this evening. It comes down to that. It is the message of the church. It is the message that will respond and answer to that. So, 
Let's take our card out just for a minute. And you wrote some names on that card. And my assumption is these people are not followers of Christ, that if they do not repent and believe, they will perish. So here's what we're going to do with this card. I want you to write on this card. I want you to write a, a few words, just anywhere on the card. This is just so you can remember. And this is how you're going to pray for these people. The first thing, I just want you to write divine appointment. Just divine appointment. The next word I want you to write is receptive. Just receptive or open. Either word. The next word I want you to write is boldness. Boldness. And then the last word I want you to write is thanksgiving. So here's the prayer. I want you to keep this card. Put it in your Bible. I want you to pray for these people. And this is how I want you to pray. Lord, today I want to pray for these people. Lord, call them out by name. If they were important enough to put on your list, call them out by name. And pray for them. And what you want to pray for is, Lord, give me a divine appointment. I want you to orchestrate the circumstances. It is a divine appointment. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to call them up. I'm not going to say, hey, I want to get with you and drink coffee. No, I'm going to let God do that. I'm going to pray and ask God to be God in this. I'm going to ask Him to make a divine appointment. So that I can share what Jesus means to me and what my prayer for them is and how they can know Jesus as the Lord and Savior. And I'm going to call them to repentance and to belief in Jesus when that happens. We pray for a divine appointment. That may not happen overnight. My father-in-law, Brenda's dad, one of the most godly men I've ever known, whom I'm missing. Prayed for a man almost 20 years. Remember him telling me that? Before that divine appointment came. But when God opens that door, it's for a reason. It's a different conversation than just how's the wind. The next word that you're going to write on there is openness or receptive. And the prayer is, Lord, just make this person receptive, open to this message, to this, to hear this. Just clear their calendar, their, their calendar, whatever has to happen. Get them at the bottom of their life. Whatever has to happen, Lord, for them to be open. Let them be open. Boldness. Lord, give me boldness that when that opportunity comes, I step through that door and with boldness, we talked about that, share what you have talked to me about sharing. And then you're going to just pray for thanksgiving. Like, Lord, thank you that you love this person more than I do. And you have a plan for your life. And the fact that they're on this card means that you're already working in this. Because if you're working in me, you're working in them. And this name just didn't come out of the air. The Holy Spirit put that down in that piece of paper for you. And this is important. And it seems simple, but it's not simple. It took the King of Kings and Lord of Lords dying on a cross. It took God turning His back on His Son to make that possible. And so when He moves in the life of these people, you're going to see some lives changed. And that's what it means to share your faith. That's what it means to allow God to make a difference through us. And He'll honor that. 
And God will be God. It's not going to be some spiffy strategy. We just need to pray. So let's just stop right here and just pray. Father, today, you've put these names on our heart and on this list. And Lord, in, in this room, there's, there's countless names already. There's, Lord, there's 20, 30, 40, 50 people that we know that need your love today. Father, we just pray that you spare their life another day. That they would not fall under a tower or, or Lord, have some tragic thing happen to them, Lord. That you would spare them long enough to hear and respond to your love. So we pray for that today. Father, we pray for just a divine appointment that only you can give. Father, we pray that you give us just a, give them an open heart, a receptive heart to that message. Lord, we pray that you give us boldness as we, we share who and what you are in our life and what your word says about what you've done for us. And Father, we just give you thanks already for the saved souls that we'll see and for people who will give their heart to you, Lord, and live their lives passionate about who and what you are. Lord, we thank you for this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, this evening, there's so much that we can talk about and do, but, you know, I love reading the old confessions of faith. I, I'm just going to read, and these guys read, so I'm going to prove that I can read too. Okay? <laughs> so, uh, I'm, not, I'm not as good a reader, actually. So, confessions of faith. What are confessions of faith? Confessions of faith are not doctrinal statements. They are a response of a church to any given culture. That's all they are. That's why they change. Because culture changes. And so a confession of faith typically has to be updated at some point and address culture with what we believe. So here's the confession of faith. I'm not going to read the whole thing. This is out of chapter 8 of the Westminster Confession. But here's, here's what I want you to catch out of this. I'm going to stand on this side of the podium, and this is going to represent what God has done, okay? And then we're going to walk over here, and we're going to talk about our response to that here in a minute, okay? And this is where we're going to spend a little bit of time. But we can't go there until we talk about what God did, okay? So I'm just going to read these guys. They're good at this. They, they wrote really well. Here we go. According, according to God's eternal plan and good pleasure, the Son of God, equal with the Father, and the exact representation of his nature willingly left the glory of heaven, was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin, and was born the God-man. He walked on the earth in perfect obedience to the law of God, and then in the fullness of time, he was rejected by men and crucified. On the cross, he carried the sins of his people, was forsaken by God, suffered divine wrath, and died condemned. On the third day, God raised him from the dead as a public declaration that his death was accepted. The punishment for sin was paid. The demand for justice was satisfied. The wrath of God was appeased. Forty days after his resurrection, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, ascended to heaven, where he stepped down at the right hand of the Father and was given glory and honor and dominion and all power. And there at the right hand of God, in the presence of God, he represents his people and makes requests and special petition to God on their behalf. 
This is the good news of God and of Jesus Christ, His Son. Amen? Amen. Amen. Wow. Woo. I could spend all day right here. But we got to walk over here. we got to talk about what is our response to what God has done. We've said the response the Bible talks about is Jesus calls us to repent and believe. Important. So what do we respond? What is man's response to this wonderful gospel? What is the gospel? And what do we say to somebody that cries out, what must I do to be saved? That's important that we know that. Jesus says in Mark 1, 14 and 15, He says this, He came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. We've got to understand that this call to repentance and belief of the gospel is not just some special command of Christ for the Jews or for the New Testament period or for some dispensation. It continues to be the central message of the gospel yesterday, today, and it will be that tomorrow. That is the gospel. A call to repent and to believe. So this is essential. Rest repentance. Now all I'm going to say about this is, as far as right here, I just need to make a preference. Because this is, this is important. Jesus says, with the faith of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. Genuine faith can move a mountain. So, if you ask me, Yes, the prayers of a a seven-year-old, the faith of a seven-year-old child will save a seven-year-old person. I believe that. Somebody that maybe doesn't understand all the seriousness of their sin and what it really costs God, but they are convicted about their sin, that's good enough. I don't expect them to stay at that level. I expect that to grow and deepen with time. But it's enough to save something. So I just need to say that. Because this is the, the Bible is very clear about what repentance is. And it's been a long time since I've heard repentance in a lot of gospel presentations. And so I'm just going to tell you tonight that that's where it's at. If you want to know how to be effective in changing lives, and seeing changed lives and churches growing, we're going to have to get this back into our vocabulary. It's biblical. In fact, there's four different key words in, in the Bible, two are Hebrew, two are Greek words, that talk about repentance. But let me just walk you through the concepts of what biblical repentance is. And you're going to find it's really interesting because all of these will address huge cultural challenges of our day. They're not new. The scriptures have been addressing these things for years, since its foundation. So here's the first one. Can repentance, biblical repentance is always a change of mind. It's to perceive. The word is a Greek word. It means to perceive differently, to understand differently. Repentance involves a radical change of a person's perspective of reality and how the world is working. Prior to conviction, prior to salvation, the Bible says in Ephesians that we live in the futility of our mind. Whatever we think is right is right to us. But that's not right. We were working on the island of Margarita, planting churches, and one of our best strategies for reaching upper middle class with the gospel in Venezuela 
was to have lot was to disciple lost people. We would get lost people in groups, and then they would start studying the Bible and working through these programs and all they filling in these blanks, and they would we literally were discipling lost people. And so they would begin to study the Bible. And so here's a group of these people in our home in Las Tunas studying the Bible. There was a lady, Maria. She would come to this study. She was a business owner. She had her own business. She was a powerful woman. She'd been divorced. She was mad at the world. Could cuss like a saint. In fact, even after Bible study, sometimes Brenda and I would talk about, you think we ought to paint the living room this week? Because there was enough filthy language on these walls. Maybe we need to paint them again. This was a rough, rough person. But she was there. She was a seeker. She was, God was working in her heart. She was working through the lessons. and She was being challenged. And, and she, she finally got to the end of her rope. And she repented and believed in Jesus Christ. She started coming to the studies. It was like watching physically a different person come into the room. And she would be amazed at herself. We used to talk about it. Because she would come in and she'd say, This has just been the weirdest thing. People come into my store now. And I just asked them how their day is and how they've been. He said, that's not me. I hate people. <laughs> and she'd say, I'd, I'd come outside and the sky was blue and the grass was green. I never noticed the grass was green, she said. Her, her whole perspective of life had changed. That's what the Bible's talking about when it talks about repentance. There is a change of mind. You don't keep thinking the way you were thinking. There is a sorrow for sin. The Bible talks about this is a biblical repentance. It comes from a Hebrew word that means to grieve deeply. The idea is that physically, when I grieve or I feel sorrow, regret, or contrition, I grieve, it comes out of me. There is a genuine sorrow for sin. That's what God did for me. Jesus does that, doesn't he? Jesus told a parable one day. He told this parable because there were some people in his presence that felt self-righteous. And they didn't think they needed that. And so he said, two men went up to Jerusalem to pray. One was a Pharisee. And he went into the temple to pray. He went over there all by himself. And he said, God, thank you that I am not like these adulterers and thieves and liars. And even like this other man who's a tax collector. I, I fast. I fast every week. And I give 10% on every stinking penny I make. Thank you, God. The other man stayed off in the back, fell to his knees and would beat his chest and was afraid to even lift his eyes up into the heavens. He said, Father, forgive me. I'm a sinner. Jesus says that when these two men went home, this is the man who goes home forgiven. Whoever exalts himself, God will humble. But whoever humbles himself, God will exalt. When repentance comes into our life, there is going to be a genuine sorrow.
about in our culture. We live in a culture where, you know, you, you just don't see it that way. It's The world sees, you know, shame, sorrow. No, you're, you're supposed to love yourself and be proud of what you do. You're all right. Everybody's all right, in fact. But that's not the repentance. That's not what we're talking about here. It seems the, the world, the, the evangelical community has fallen into this. And it's kind of adopted a pop psychology about this of self-esteem. I think the slightest true comprehension of our sinfulness and guilt will lead to genuine sorrow, shame, and even some healthy hatred and loathing of our sin and of ourselves. I am a sinner. Now you may not start there when you're first saved, but you better get there if you're growing. If you really know Jesus Christ, there's going to be a day you look in the mirror. But that's okay, because God doesn't leave us there. He just needs that in us, so He can be God. And we're not. There is a personal acknowledgement and confession of sin. It's all part of this uh, definition of sin in the Bible. Confession is agreement with God's opinion of us as true, and His verdict is just, and we are sinners, and we have sinned, and we deserve divine condemnation. Biblical repentance always involves owning up to who we are and what we have done. The way I say it at the hospital is, I do not give absolution without confession and repentance. You come to me and you say, oh, Chaplain Perry, I really messed up. Because that's what you think. I'm in the hospital because I messed up. God's punishing me. I hear it every day. And so they think, uh, well, I really messed up. Now, there's a lot of guys at this point would say, well, we're all human. We all make mistakes. But see, what would I be doing if I gave that? I'd be giving absolution. I don't give absolution until I hear it. My next question always is, what did you do? <laughs> what did you do? What you done my life? I beat my children. I steal. I lie. Okay. Well, how do you feel about that? So guilty about that. All right. Now let's talk about that. I never give absolution until there's confession and repentance. You know, God, He didn't want to leave you there. But just that's just something we do. We have to confess. We have to agree with God about our condition and what He says about us. Now the good thing, it's not just a negative confession. I'm, I'm a sinner. We also have to confess Jesus is Lord. That's a positive confession. That's agreeing with God. That's what confession is. The Bible says we ought to continue confessing with one another. When's the last time you've confessed your sins to each other? I have a friend, he was up speaking in one of the churches up north. His little old church, isolated. He's a missionary. He got up there, he was going to go tell them how to do church. Got up there, the church was just blowing and going. And they were just, it was amazing. It was one of the best churches he'd ever visited. And he got to kind of see what was, how they were doing that. One of them, they were praying 24-7. And then they, part of the service, they just get up in front of each other and just confess their sins and they get around each other and pray. And, well, don't do that anymore. Okay, we're going to help you not do that anymore. I mean, they were just living the Christian life. They'd read the New Testament. 
And God was blessing this church, and they were reaching their community. The Bible says, when my people will humble themselves and look for God, He will heal the land. Make the connection. This church is going, this, this country is going the way it's going because the church has not been the church. We blame it on everything else, but it's us. We own it. God says, I put you here to be a light, to be salt. I'm holding you responsible for this. It's on us. When 9-11 happened, I remember thinking this thought. The reason 9-11 happened and those guys threw is because we didn't get to the gospel in that country and save those people and give them the love of Christ. Had they been Christians and brothers in Christ, they wouldn't have flown a plane into our building. They'd been just brothers and sisters in Christ. We didn't go there. We didn't take the gospel there. Now they're our enemies. That's how simple that is. And we had 2,000 years to do it. Didn't get that. We are responsible as a church for this message. To get this out. It's a turning away from sin. Always. The, the word in the Old Testament here is to turn back. To, to look back. To return. And God always calls us to turn back. He doesn't leave us in our sin. It is the forsaking of sin. I get people that every once in a while they don't want to be saved because they, they enjoy their sin. I'm not ready to give that up. You know what? You're not going to get saved until you're ready to give that up. You've got to lay it down. Repentance in the New Testament is a turning away from sin. You've got to stop. You don't want it anymore. That's part of repentance. The good thing is repentance is more than that. It's also a turning to God in obedience and submission. Forsaking sin is not the end in itself. It's only the means of a greater end, and that is a turning to God. It's not just about living a moral life. It's about living a life in intimate relationship with a living and a God who loves you and has known your name since the foundations of the earth. Who wants to spend an eternity with you. Not because you deserve it or you're any better than the next guy. You are just as sinful as everybody but because He knows you and He's called you out and you respond and repent and believe, He says, come on, you're mine. You're mine. Amen? What a joy that is that God calls us to that. And then it is also a call to practical obedience. Repentance in the New Testament always is about practical obedience. Emphasizing on right behavior. If I want to be a person who knows scientific knowledge, that intellectual curiosity is my guide. I've got to wake up in the morning just to be curious. I want to learn things. But if I want to know and understand the Word of God and what Jesus wants to teach me through the Word of God, then it is only through obedience that I learn these truths. Not through curiosity. I got convicted about this not too long ago. We get our Bibles out, we read, and let's get together and study how wonderful this is. These are great. These are such amazing thoughts. And I just love talking about them. 
And then I go home and don't do anything about it. That'd be like me telling my children, you know, I want you to go clean your room. And then my son goes down and he says, hey, come here. He gets his other, his other siblings together and goes, man, Dad told me to clean your room. Isn't that a great idea? Let's just stop and talk about that a while. That's a wonderful concept. And I said, no! I want him to physically go in his room and clean his room. Jesus is not content with us just sitting around talking about how wonderful the Christian life is. We are to go out and to live it. It's obedience. And when we are obedient, God shows us the next thing. And it's through obedience, not through curiosity and intellect, that we learn these truths. That's important. Because we need to grow. And repentance is a call to that to that thing. Zacchaeus was this person, wasn't he? Remember Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man. I go out to Meadow Lake every week and have to sing all these songs so they're in my head all the time. <laughs> Climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior walked that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down from going to your house today. Well, Zacchaeus got down and joyously received the Lord, the Bible says. And he was sitting there with Jesus, and he was excited that all the neighbors were talking about it. He said, look at that, Jesus is in there, he was sinners. And Zacchaeus was so excited about the change, it says he received the Lord. And he was so excited about the change in his life, he didn't stand up and say it to the crowd. The Bible says he turned to Jesus. And he got eye to eye with Jesus, is the word. He said, Jesus, I'm going to give half of everything I owe to the poor. Now you think about that. To, the, to that day, that money was the most important thing. It was his God. But his heart had been changed. God was God in his heart now. He said, half of everything I have, I'm going to give to the poor. And if I've wronged anybody, I'm going to restore it fourfold. And then Jesus gets up and he says, salvation has come into this home. He's a child of Abraham. It's an amazing story. Obedience was the result of this life-changing difference in his life. Are you obedient? Does it live out on a daily basis? If you do, then you're saved. Because you can't fake that. See, I, I'm convinced that getting saved is more than just getting invited to church. And evangelism is more than just inviting somebody to your church. I'm convinced, as a missionary, I've seen this. And some, sometimes we put people's hope in the fact that they pray a prayer one day and that they were sincere. But I've read the Bible, I never, I never see that as, a, as a, like it's just a command to do that. Now, don't get me wrong, I see, I've seen people say that way thousands of times. But what we really need to look at is not the fact that did I pray a prayer was sincere when I was sick, but I've been living like the devil all my life. No. The Bible says when you truly repent, when you truly believe, however you confess that, there is going to be a change of life in you. And you're going to be constantly repenting of your sins. You're going to be constantly confessing Jesus as Lord. 
and that you are a sinner. You're going to be constantly going through this process of growing and strengthening. But the wonderful thing about it is, these things were written so that you can know that you're saved. So if I start seeing these things in my life, now I know I'm saved. I don't have to doubt that. I don't have to struggle with that. Because you know what? A Christian that is not secure about their relationship with God is one of the most useless, selfish people on the face of the planet. Because every day they wake up thinking about themselves. And their religion begins to evolve around them. Well, this church is all about me. Am I comfortable? Am I... No! That's not the Christian life. God says, nail that down and get that right because I need you to look up and see the harvest and I don't want it to be about you anymore. I want it to be about them. And so get secure in that. I've got that. See the fruit in your life? You're mine. Now go on and go to work. It's time to work. That's the Christian life. And that's what we are to be about. <coughs> Alright, i got one minute. I want to honor that. But here's where I want to end. Matthew, I can't, I think, I can't just beat you up and leave you there. Gosh. Matthew, what a wonderful chapter in the Bible. Matthew ends his gospel the curse. The church is besides this. Jesus is dying. It's a bad thing. There's no hope. You know, you get to read the news and hearing Jeff and Brian talk, you think we're losing. I mean, that's, that's where we're at. I mean, you know, so man, we got to get, get this together. So that's not where it is. There's a chapter 28 in Matthew. And it starts off with some women going to the, to the burial site of Jesus. And they get there, and an angel sitting on a rock. And they come looking for Jesus. I know you're looking for Jesus. He isn't here. He's not here. The one that was crucified, he's not here. Now, first of all, let me just say something about crucifixion. You need the gospel. If you preach the gospel, you need the crucifixion of Christ in your gospel. It is powerful. It was public. It didn't happen in the corner somewhere in the back of, of the city. Everybody in town knew about the crucifixion. It's one of the most documented historical events in the face of the planet. You don't have to be embarrassed about preaching the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It was powerful. People's lives were changed. It was personal for people. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Since He is not here, He was crucified. Here's what I want you to do, He said. I want you to go and tell Jesus Christ not only was crucified, he was raised from the dead. There would have been no need for the resurrection of the dead had Jesus not been crucified and died. But the death of Jesus Christ would mean absolutely nothing as far as salvation had he not been raised from the dead. You've got to preach them both. One without the other means absolutely nothing. He's not here. He is risen. Go and tell. And then we get down to the end of this chapter, and, and Jesus, we have the words of Jesus now in the Great Commission. And he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Wow. All authority. Authority over governments, over politics, over economy, over the over your over over the environment, over the, the country. All authority in heaven and and in earth, and all authority 
over your life and my life. All authority has been given to you. So think about this for just a minute. We have a, a risen Savior who has all authority in heaven and on earth. He was crucified, paid the price for our sin, and raised from the dead, making it available to us now. Victory over death. Now, if you if you have all authority and you can't die, you can't lose. If for no other reason, that's a good enough reason to be on the side of Jesus. He can't lose. He has all authority. He is never going to die. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I want on that train. I want with that group. And it's powerful. Now, some people make this a theological problem. Well, if God is all if he has all authority and He's with me always, then how come my wife has cancer? And how come I'm dying? And blah, blah, blah. And you can do that. And it won't help any. You're still going to die and have cancer. But, but here's another way to look at that. If Jesus has all power and all authority and He cannot lose and He is alive and well and He promises to be with me to the end, He says, that I am free to not live in guilt and shame and sin and sorrow and regrets. I can live my life with hope and confidence and forgiveness. I don't want to worry about what's going to happen tomorrow because my God holds the tomorrow. He's all authority. He loves me. He has power. He is with me to the end. I can wake up in the morning. I don't have to say, well, I'd give something to church, but i got to save something for later, you know. No! I can give like I've always wanted to give. I can share like I've always wanted to share. I can go wherever God sends me. I can be a passion and a force with the love and the passion of Jesus Christ. Why? Because He has all authority. He has all power in heaven and earth. He has resurrected from the dead. And He is with me to the very end. I am free to live this life wide open. And when we grasp the significance of that, we're going to see lives change, churches growing, and people being saved, and Zacchaeus are going to fill our churches. It's that simple. And all it starts with is believing what it says here. Having faith that God can do what He said He would do. Do you believe that? Is there not something in your heart that resonates with that? Is that not the reason you were put here on this earth? That's exciting. Well, I went over. What a joy to talk about the things of the Lord. What a joy. But Jesus didn't come back today. He may come back tomorrow. We're going to live like that, and we're going to share Christ with the passion and the power of a risen Savior who is with us from the very beginning to the very end. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, I just thank you for this evening. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the passion and the love in this room. I needed that, Lord. I needed that. Father, I pray that you would open doors.
give us boldness to share this wonderful message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Carrie. Well, I think you've had a great afternoon and evening. I don't know what else to say. Um, anyway, I appreciate everybody coming out. You know, uh, we talked about the ministry of attendance, and I mean, it's just been great being with everybody tonight. It's been a great time of fellowship, and uh, just just hearing from the Lord. It's been great. Um, anyway, we'll meet again tomorrow, Sunday school, and Pastor Bob will be wrapping up the conference during our worship service tomorrow. You all are dismissed.